talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Just like COVID-19, the election campaign is coming to an end. Hopefully, we don't need a booster for that. Oh. Here, Scott Thompson. Bend over. Bend over. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Uh, Diana and Dave in the newsroom. Uh, watching the world unfold. Uh, good to talk to you. How you been? Had a week off there last week, and uh, it was fascinating to say the least. Uh, quite boring, but that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and here we are heading into the last week of the election campaign and uh, equally as sleepy. And that's probably a good thing because by this time, I think we're all kind of tired of it, aren't we? So uh, uh, I took off as of Friday and uh, was heading up north. And, you know, the whole idea was... Um, you know, a little R&R, and my brother-in-law was celebrating his 65th birthday, so we had some family thing uh, going on and whatever. So, uh, and oh, so I'm driving up north on Friday night, and I, fa- I passed a Freedom Convoy. I wondered what the heck it was. It's because it was like, you know, 9 o'clock after 9, maybe 9.30 at night, so the sun was, you know, down or just setting. It was kind of dark. And, I, you know, I'm driving down the road, and, and like, they're coming towards me. It's like, what the heck is this? It's like it's... uh uh, is it a convoy? Uh, you know, flashing yellow lights, and I thought it was some sort of uh, construction thing, whatever, or whatever. I don't know. And then, uh, boom, the first uh, truck goes by me, and it's got the big flags on it, and it's got Freedom Convoy on the side. And then, boom, another one goes by, and boom, boom. And I think there was, I don't know, it was half a dozen or six or seven. And I'm sort of like, what the heck was that? Was that like a was that a freedom convoy? What what, what is that? Anyway, so uh, that was my experience with the freedom convoy on the way up. So anyway, uh, get up there and uh, Friday night, and then Saturday uh, a storm hits, and not a word of a lie. I'm sitting. It's like lunchtime, one o'clock or so. I'm sitting at, at the table, and the the thing comes across the phone, the alert, the warning. Uh, of which it didn't give as much time, that's for sure. And it said, uh, you know, the typical large hail damaging winds, the stuff you normally see. And then it said capable of moving vehicles, winds capable of moving vehicles or something to that extent. Uh, and, and I just showed it to my wife because, you know, you don't want to get the kids too riled up. And the next thing it's like, hey, everybody in, 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 in. And honestly, for us, we were just on the edge. So uh, a big torrential rainstorm came in for like 15 minutes. And almost within the first two or three minutes, dink, the power went out. And we thought, well, wow, you know, that was it. But all around us, like even five, ten minutes away, five minutes away, uh, there was unbelievable damage. And homes that are still, or cottages that are still without power, towns are still without power uh, up there. Uh, well, all around us, really, uh, pretty much from Sarnia through to Quebec. So, uh, you know, what an incredible uh, situation to be in and then have the power go out for, for obviously extended periods of time, but not really knowing the, the extent of the damage around you. And I'm talking like vehicles damaged, houses with roofs tore off and, and you know, trees that are a foot and a half in diameter snapped four feet from the ground and then tossed into a lake uh, a half a kilometer away. So unbelievably damaging and how more people weren't, uh, weren't hurt or, or killed is beyond me. And, um, I was talking to my brother-in-law and he was reading somewhere. It was like something like 1800 or so, uh, hydro poles had been snapped. So think how long it takes to put in a hydro pole and then think of them all across uh, Ontario and Quebec. I was driving home yesterday and literally you would see at every roadside diner or every hotel motel at least a half a dozen hydro trucks. Like I must have seen 50 on the way home. It was uh, incredible and literally hydro poles snapped off at the base just hanging there. 
So that's a little bit more than just removing a tree from something. So, and obviously, you know, news breaking today, Ottawa's main grid is just finally up and running as of today. So extensive damage uh, across the province, just in, in weird uh, spots here and there. And and for us, it was out, uh, by that time, everybody left. And I was up there by myself. And uh, 11.30, I'm literally putting my head down on the pillow uh, on Monday night. And everything has been out, jet black and zero silent, quiet for, you know, two and a half days going on to the third day. And honestly, as I'm putting my pillow, uh, head down on the pillow uh, to go to sleep, all of a sudden, boom, the lights come on like a fire hall and the radio comes on. The stereo starts blasting. Because it was like 1 o'clock in the afternoon when it went out. Although why all the lights were on isn't beyond me. I guess someone, are they still off yet? Uh, so literally, you go from total quiet, total darkness, to all of a sudden it's like a fire hall. It's like Squad 51. And holy jeebers, it scared the heck right out of me. Uh, but thank goodness, uh, again, after two and a half days, we were back up. But, man, there's lots of people. They're going to be uh, another week before they they get to the bottom of uh, of fixing all of these poles and, and all of the the infrastructure that has been damaged by that storm that uh, people are still talking about it today. Although uh, in our area, of course, uh, a lot better. And uh, and but, you know, again, stories heard of, of what happened Saturday afternoon. That's for sure. All right, let's move on. I'm just watching a video right now of uh, the Falcons that, of course, uh, nest on uh, the ledges at uh, the uh, Sheridan Hotel in Hamilton. And I've been doing this for 25, 25, 26 years now uh, that they've been watching these. And uh, I'm watching a, uh, a brave, a very brave man in a harness and a helmet hanging on to uh, this uh this uh, chick, which is bigger than you think it is, and, and actually going through the process. And, and you can see all of this and what we're talking about. Uh, let's bring in Krista Jackson, Falcon Watch Coordinator, and is with us now. Krista, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you for having us. All right. So we chatted about this before when the eggs uh, were hatching and what have you. Now we're at the banding process. Uh, give us a little bit of a history here and, and where we are today. Okay, so on Friday afternoon, um, we did have the Canadian Peregrine Foundation come and help us out with climbers. And uh, what they do is, as the if you look in the video, John rappels down into the nest and he picks up the chicks carefully one by one and he puts them into a soft container that protects them. And we send them back up, uh, up to the mechanical room roof and then we take them into the building and at that time we check to make sure that they're healthy they don't have any bugs or anything where there might be medical attention needed um, that has happened in the past where we've treated them but there is no issues this time they were all very healthy um, as an added benefit this year, we did have um, the federal government, some environmental services people there, and they actually did blood work on the chicks, and this will help uh, document the health of the general area and give us a better idea of how our falcons are doing. At the time, they received two different bands. One is a silver one, which is from Fish and Wildlife, and there is a black one, which is the Canadian one, and this has um, letter and number IDs, and this is perhaps the most important one for us because it gives us time to easily identify them. And if they uh, migrate into the States, it gives them protection. So um, where people can trap uh, peregrine falcons in the States legally, if they accidentally do trap a Canadian one with the black band, they must release it by law. They're not able to keep it in captivity. Um, so it helps us, you know, protect the, the chicks as they grow through their life. Um, we named them also on Friday, so I don't know how much you guys know about it, but usually we name them from something to do with Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, one year we did Hamilton Parks. This year we did Historical Houses. That's a so great idea. Had, um, thank you. I don't know whose idea it was, but uh, it definitely is nice to have everyone all of our chicks are back to Hamilton. So um, this year we did it after historical houses like um, Wednesday, for example, is one name. And the house was built in 1925 and it was used as a convalescent home um, for the Royal Canadian Air Forces during the Second World War. So it's kind of nice. It gives you an opportunity to learn a little bit more about the city where you might not have known it before. 
Uh, we have two males this year. Um, they're Balfour and Dundurn, and our females would be Wednesday <laughs> and Ockmar. Um, and then the last part of it, which um, is on the silver bands, we place t- um, electrical tape, which will eventually fall off and it does not harm the chicks at all. Each one is a different color, and that just makes it easier for the feet on the street, the volunteers. Um, It's very hard to read the actual um, numbers and letters on the tags unless we happen to get them stopped at a great spot. But it's easy enough to be able to see a a yellow tag or a red tag when they fly by so we can keep tracking them. And it allows us to make sure that we still have uh, sight on all four chicks once they start flying. This is quite the physical. How long are the chicks actually out of the nest before someone rappels back down and drops them off? Um, it kind of depends. This this time was a little bit longer because of the blood work, which isn't done all the time. Um, mm-hmm. Usually it's just kind of like 20 minutes. Um, this one was a little longer. I wasn't actually paying attention to the time. But if you watch the video that is posted online, it'll give you an indication of the length of time. Um, They are given water throughout the process so they don't get dehydrated or anything. And um, we kind of had it as um, as quickly as possible. Once one chick was checked with one thing and then went to get the blood taken while we start on the next. So it's not like you wait for one check to finish before you start the other, which also sped up the uh, process as well. So and then you drop them all back down and everything just tickety boo continues on. Exactly. And the added bonus with um, the climber, he stays at the nest to keep the parents from returning to find no chicks there. And while he's there, um, I don't know if you would have noticed, but in the cameras, we do sometimes get a weed that grows up and it gets quite large. So he did weed the nest ledge for us. So it is (laughs) garden free again. Oh, man, that's amazing. Okay, talk about what's happening June 2nd and volunteers. Okay, so June 2nd is our um, volunteer training. It is at 6.30 at the David Braley Health um, Health Sciences Centre in downtown Hamilton. And it's just a quick way for us to get you, give you a lowdown on what the Feet in the Street program is, give you the essential training that you need to do it. Um, you get a chance to meet the coordinators, and they're the ones who actually will direct volunteers um, during the Feet on the Street. So what that is, it should start um, approximately June 13th is our anticipation date. But if the chicks look like they're going to start preparing to leave and start flying early, it may be bumped up. Um, But as they start moving around the nest and hopping up on the ledge and doing different behaviors like helicoptering where they're preparing to fly, (laughs) we start gathering and we watch. So when they fly... Volunteers will go to different areas um, following their flight path just to make sure that they landed safely, that they haven't had any collisions with buildings or um, failed to get the height that they need and maybe touch down on the ground. If something happens like that, the rescue box is brought in. There are rescue people that are trained to rescue the falcons if they end up in a jammed up area where you can't easily rescue them. And if the chick is all right, then they're brought back up to the top of the Sheridan Hotel and released right by the nesting Mm. ledge. If we're suspecting that maybe something has happened, then they are taken to get medical attention and they don't get released back to the nest site until we get the green light that they are healthy enough to return. That's amazing. All right, Chris, the website we can go to to find out more about all of this? If you just Google Hamilton Falcon Watch, it'll come right up. Okay, Krista Jackson with us, Falcon Watch coordinator, and uh, the four of the chicks uh, this year uh, all been banded successfully. Krista, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. uh, It's obviously a beautiful day outside. Going to be another beautiful night. Uh, Nice warm weather. And it's summertime, you can look up uh, certain times of the year and see a spectacular media shower. Lots of times it's towards the end of August, uh, certain things. But this is a scenario where it might be a show, it may not be a show. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, uh, emeritus professor, York University, with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed, Scott. Beautiful day out there and compliments to the clear sky forecast for tonight. So it's a show that might happen or may not. Why maybe, why maybe so? Well, what we've got is a meteor shower, which happens every year. It's called the Tau Hercules. Uh, It's associated with a comet that was found back in 1930, uh, Schwarzman 
Wackman, were the two Germans who found it. But in 1995, the comet's nucleus, the head of the comet, actually disintegrated. It got a little bit too close to the sun and was tidally disrupted. That big rubble heap is still orbiting the sun. And we're going to run across it tonight at about 1 a.m. Eastern time. And that's what's leading some terrific speculation that if the rubble that is there is thicker than we think, we can't see it, so we don't really know. But if it's thicker than we think, uh, then we may end up with a, a, a large amount of material hitting the Earth's atmosphere at reasonable speeds, burning up and creating literally a huge shower of shooting stars. And why may it not happen? Well, that uh, rubble that uh, was created back in 1995, if it blew itself apart, then it's had 25 years to spread out and disperse. So think about sort of, uh, you know, when a fireworks goes off, you know, a a skyrocket. When it Mm -hmm. erupts in the sky and it happens almost instantly, it's quite bright, but then it spreads out because, of course, of the the momentum associated with the skyrocket. And so it forms that beautiful sort of like Ferris wheel. Well, the Ferris wheel is great, but it covers a big area. So if you're running through that Ferris wheel, then not much is happening. But if you run through the fireworks, the skyrocket, when it is just exploding, then there's a lot of stuff right there. And so that's, that's the big question. That's the unknown. Has the material from the cometary breakup dispersed and therefore we're going to plow through a whole lot of nothing, (laughs) or is it still concentrated with pieces that might be centimetre in size? And if it is concentrated, then we could really be in for a a terrific display tonight. So heading back to 1995, this was an annual event. Is this situation that's happening tonight an annual event as well? Yes, but the number of uh, meteors that were normally associated with this shower is pretty small. Uh, you mentioned the Perseids at the uh, introduction. We can get 60 to 100 meteors per hour at the height of the Perseid meteor shower in August. The Tau Hercules is more like you know 10 to 20, and they're normally fairly faint. So it is a shower which is on the books that we see regularly every year, but this year, instead of 10 to 20, we could be talking up to 100. We could be talking hundreds. Unfortunately, we just don't know. And what initially caused this again back in 1995? Uh, so as comets swing into the inner solar system, the sun heats the cometary nucleus. And a comet is made up of not just rock, but also a lot of what we call volatile materials. Water, which is in the form of ice, carbon dioxide, which is in the form of ice, methane in the form of ice. As all that stuff gets heated by the sun, it sort of explodes out of the surface of the comet and that weakens the comet. Eventually, because comets do this, they come into the inner solar system regularly. Uh, Schwassmann Wackman had a period of five years. So every five years, it would get heated mercilessly, and then it would go out into the deep freeze, and then it would come back heated mercilessly. Hmm. 1995, it basically said enough of this, and it cracked entirely. (laughs) Sounds like my driveway on a typical year. Uh, So this literally (laughs) would have just exploded then. That's exactly right. And we've got some pretty good images uh, that the Hubble Space Telescope was able to take from that particular event and uh, a couple of cycles later. So there is quite a bit of debris there. But as I said, how much of the we can only see the big stuff. It's the small stuff, mm. which could be you know, counted in the thousands and millions of pieces. And that's what we can't see. And that's what will hopefully cause the meteor shower tonight. So, you know, it, it's one of those things that for the sake of, you know, going outside at one o'clock uh, in the morning, you might end up witnessing a one in a lifetime type event. The last meteor storm that I'm aware of was in 2001. It was the Leonid meteor shower. And literally it ended up at the level of hundreds per hour at its peak. It really was quite a blizzard of activity back in 2001. I don't think tonight's is going to measure up to that, but it certainly could be a really good sight. So what does this mean for satellites floating around or the International Space Station? Uh, Any danger there? Well, it's increased chance of being hit. Micrometeoroids are always uh, a hazard for satellites in Earth orbit. But space is pretty big. I mean, you know, our atmosphere... Yeah, the Earth is you know, 12,000 kilometres in diameter, so it, it acts as a big vacuum cleaner as far as this debris is concerned. And it looks you know, as if there's a lot of stuff raining down. But 
as far as the International Space Station is concerned, it's only like a couple of hundred meters long. So, you know, it right. could end up with a few extra dings. It's highly, highly unlikely, but not impossible, that something more substantial could happen. I'm sure that they are on alert, but they would not be unduly concerned. All right, so if we want uh, to see or hopefully see a show, and we don't know really what we're going to get, uh, we haven't heard the review on this one yet, uh, <laughs> 1 o'clock in the morning, what do we do? Okay, so grab a nice comfy chair. You want to be outside around about 12.30, getting fully dark adapted. Make sure all of the lights in the house are off. If there's any yard lights, turn them off. If you've got a neighbor's light on, ask them to turn it off. You want to be in as dark an environment as you can generate, get fully dark adapted, and then have a nice clear southern horizon from about 45 degrees up to the zenith point that's straight up you're looking if if you recognize the big dipper you're just off the tail end of the handle of the dipper so it's going to be nice and high in the sky that's the quadrant that you want to be looking at no binoculars no telescope just the unaided eye and sit back and relax Uh, it's the sort of thing where you, you just need to be fully dark adapted, immersed, if you will, in the night sky and just watch the shooting stars come. You talked about the Big Dipper. I noticed this weekend it's like straight above us, right in the center of the there sky. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Canada it couldn't be in a better position for this observation tonight. The moon is basically new, so it's out of the way and therefore the skies are dark. Uh, the, the radiant point, as I said, is just off the end of the Big Dipper, which is really good between Ursa Major and Boutus for those amateur astronomers out there. It's perfectly placed. So you have no excuse. It's warm tonight. It's <laughs> one o'clock. Go out and perhaps be a part of history. And if it doesn't happen, you had a nice evening out. There you go. Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus, Astronomy, York University. Could be a spectacular meteor shower tonight, but maybe not. We, uh, But if it is, it'll be a good one. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Cheers. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Ronnie Hawkins, Southern U.S. rockabilly artist from Arkansas, moved to Canada, became a godfather uh, to a generation of influential rock musicians, uh, passed away at the age of 87, probably best known uh, how for how he mentored uh, Canadian musicians as opposed to actually his music. Uh, his wife, Wanda, confirmed to the Canadian press that he died Sunday morning after a long illness. He lived in the Peterborough area, uh, had a place up on uh, Stony Lake for the longest time, uh, and then uh, moved out of there a few years ago and uh, into Peterborough. He went peacefully and looked as handsome as ever, his uh, wife said, known for uh, his vivacious personality, his onstage performance, uh, his enthusiastic uh, stage presence, and just a, a, a bigger-than-life guy and covered a lot of uh, other people's stuff, uh, whether it was uh, Bo Diddley or uh, Ruby Baby, Dion, uh, all that sort of stuff. And, and really mentored a lot of Canadian musicians of that era. To talk more about all of this and uh, the passing of Ronnie Hawkins, let's bring in Alan Cross, host of the Ongoing History of New Music, and is with us now. Alan, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, I'm doing okay. Doing okay. As I mentioned, Alan, uh, Ronnie Hawkins probably known to the generation, uh, his generation, as more of a mentor to other musicians than his actual music catalog. Talk about what he meant to others in the right. industry. Okay, so so Ronnie was uh, up here in Canada from 1958 forward. Conway Twitty told him to come to Canada to see what it was all about. Uh, he brought American rock and roll and. Uh, American blues this way to a, a country that really didn't have that much kind of that kind of influence. Um, so what he ended up doing was uh, having this, uh, he had this band called the Hawks. He brought his drummer, Levon Helm with him from Arkansas, but he uh, ended up being this magical mentor to many, many, many people because he needed to fill this, this band with, with uh, hot, hot players. Now, originally his band was Robbie Robertson, Rick Danko, Garth Hudson, and Richard mm-hmm. Emanuel, along with Levon Helm. They, of course, later went off with Bob Dylan and then later off on their own as The Band, one of the mm-hmm. most influential uh, rock and roll groups of all time, the first Canadian group to be uh, entered into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, you know, the reason the band was so good is because Ronnie was a 
taskmaster. He drilled and rehearsed and drilled and rehearsed and drilled and rehearsed before the band, well, even as the group was playing uh, live, you know, hundreds of dates uh, up and down, especially in Hamilton, mm. which is where Ronnie first uh, showed up. Uh, but then in Toronto, along the Young Street Strip, between about Queen Street and Girard, where there were all these cocktail lounges, bars and taverns and, and clubs. Um, after 1965, they go off and uh, join Bob Dylan, and the Hawk becomes this guy who has this rotating cast of characters in this band that he drills in the finer points of rock and roll and uh, performance. And, and that, that really is his legacy. So why did he come to Canada in 1958? Why didn't he find the success in the U.S.? Well, he was told by Conway Twitty, of all people, uh, one of his peers at the time, that, you know, the Canada, he called Canada the promised land. Hmm. And you should try touring up there. And so he did. And he, like I said, he came to Hamilton. His first gig was in Hamilton. And he really, really liked it here. And after he ingratiated himself to the, the early Canadian rock scene, he decided that, no, you know what, I'm going to stay here. Um, he quipped many years ago that he liked Canada because it's one of the few places in the world where an old person can get sick and not die and not go mm. bankrupt. Mm. And uh, he, he eventually made his home in Peterborough and uh, just was this fixture uh, on the Canadian rock scene. Many refer back to his time with the Hawks, who again later became the band, and we certainly know that history as well. How do you explain his longevity after that period? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, he continued to record. I think his last major recordings were in the 1980s. Uh, but he played a lot of live shows. Uh, he had a lot of friends that uh, could always be counted on to help him out. Um, so he had a, a fairly decent domestic career as as Ronnie Hawkins through uh, up until about 2003. And then he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And mm. anybody who knows anything about pancreatic cancer yeah. knows that the diagnosis is really grim. You have months or even weeks to live. Mm -hmm. That was 2003. Ronnie died on Sunday. So he survived pancreatic cancer longer than anybody I know. And I've lost a number of friends to that disease. Uh, and he contributes that to um, Canadian healthcare system, uh, faith healers, and traditional native medicine. So, okay. Wow, there you go. Uh, the legend that is Ronnie Hawkins passing away this weekend at the age of 87. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music. Always fun, Alan. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You bet. You too. A couple of things we want to chat with Alyssa Freeman uh, with, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm doing great, Scott. Always when I'm talking with you. Uh, I'm going to throw something at you, and I know you know nothing about it, but I'll explain it to you very briefly. Uh, the uh, you know, we, we all know about the scandals in regard to the Canadian military. There was the, the Champs report coming out in 2015, said all of this, nothing seemed to be done. Then major military uh, personnel started to fall, accusations of sexual misconduct. And then, uh, obviously, Louise, uh, Supreme Court Canada Justice uh, Louise, Arbor issues her report came out today another scathing report of uh, you know I can read you quotes about the obvious uh, stuff that needs to be changed I guess my question to you is even hearing what you've just heard about this it's a brand new breaking story are we is it different now do you think that this report uh, 2022 which was actually started last year will be any different than the 2015 report i guess the the major thing is that now they can investigate themselves it will be investigated by uh, a third party or or somebody within uh, uh obviously within the legal industry but do you think anything is going to change here is, is it different now just because these three or four guys have fallen uh, I, I don't know, Scott. I mean, I think that Canadians are really tired of hearing about reports. I know that as part mm. of due process and procedure, when especially with something as a hot-button issue such as this, but I think that reports are reports. And sometimes what you do, what we find is like, you know when you, you know, make a meeting to have another meeting? Well, people are tired yeah. of having a report and yet another report. I think that Canadians just want action. Uh, that this is a real scourge on the military, it needs to be dealt with, and what they don't want is, well, we need another report, because we know that that's a tactic, right? We know that government loves reports because it buys time. 
And a report can take 18 months. It can Mm. take five years. It can take six years. So what Canadians want is they want action, especially those that have stood up and blown the whistle and, you know, tried to get action, uh, you know, against what has already been going on with the military. So, you know, are we going to see more of the same? I hope not. I hope that we see change. And I think just, you know, shame on them if change doesn't happen. And the only thing that really happened after that 2015 report that spawned this report was that, uh, you know, a a few top officials uh, started uh, having allegations and sort of dropping like flies for uh, for their sexual misconduct. That's what spawned the second one. So or or I shouldn't say the second one, this one. So, I mean, if that hadn't happened, you wondered if we'd even be chatting about this now. Oh, you know what? I think that what reports, you know, if you have want to look at the glass half full side of a report, is that it does keep the issue top of mind, and it yeah. does sort of spark conversation, not just you know among us and the media, but you know on all, on all sorts of other levels in government and and in the public. So, based on that, I would hope that. You know, we, we see some concrete action. You know, once again, I understand that you're, you're dealing with people's lives, you're dealing with people's careers, and you don't want to make the wrong de- decision. But still, allegations and sexual allegations are serious business. And obviously, this is recurrent behavior in the Canadian military. So I'm not sure what more they can simply find out. And I think that Anita Nod wants to have some sort of resolution to this, quite honestly. All right. Uh, many times you and I have talked about overreach and freedoms and all that sort of stuff as we've come through the last uh, two and a half years of a global pandemic and everything else that has ensued. Uh, we were talking a while ago about a Ottawa school who uh, conducted a, a dress code um, thing where the you know the girls were actually had to squat, see how far their shorts would come up their thigh. Uh, here's yeah, a situation yeah. in a Winnipeg school, and again, I think people for the reasons you're just saying are getting tired of this stuff. Um, when the the kids were asked to write what they wanted to be when they grew up in their yearbook. Now, this is grade four. Uh, the person wrote down, the little kid wrote down, I want to be a bartender. And uh, the mother says it's one way to be creative. You get to socialize and meet people. Uh, apparently, the kid is an uncle that bartends. Uh, parents used to do it when they were in school and such. Long story short, the school offered to make a secret yearbook for this person uh, and his twin brother, who are in the same class, with their two copies saying bartender, while the others would read hospitality. Uh, the family declined. What do you think about this? Like, my goodness, where does this come from? You, you know, I'm going to be a bartender. The kid's in grade four. What does it matter? Honest to goodness, I mean, where are we going with this? This reminds me, remember mm. that phrase, Scott, jump the shark? Yeah. Well, I yeah. think that the school board has jumped the shark on this. And why are we so afraid that somebody wants to grow up to be a bartender? And maybe yeah. that bartender really loves his work, decides that he wants to open up his own restaurant. And, and they wonder why there's a stigma. And then they, wa- and, they wonder why there's and sp- stigmatization. Of restaurant. Yeah. So, Sorry to interrupt you there, uh, 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 Alyssa. But, you know, we have the same stigma about trades. And we're complaining about that. 100%. A hundred percent. And, you know, why is it that every job opportunity has to be something that is, you know, doctor, lawyer, accountant? Mm. There's all sorts of kids with all sorts of skills and skills that we need as a society to run. And that we should not stigmatize something that is not what we consider professional. I think that, you know, schools also have to decide what is a great profession and they should not stigmatize kids for wanting to pursue this profession or you know wash it in a way that so it sounds better i mean why would they do this scott is this because you know oh we have a school and kids aspire to be bartenders well what does that say about our academic standing what does that say about you know what we're teaching kids to be but really what sort of say do you have that in any case, is it is it teaching you that the kid's great at math and knows how to make change and he wants to be a bartender yeah. so he can be exercise his, his his monetary skills and his creativity? It drives me crazy. I was gonna say it drove me to drink, but no. So what causes what causes this sort of overreach? You only got about thirty seconds left. What causes this overreach? Why now? This is, this is classic classism. This is classic uh, reputation management or what they think it is. That's what this is. This is all about what we have kids who want to be bartenders and not doctors. Who's going to want to attend our school for that? I think this is, this is just really 
classic worried about your own reputation because of one kid who says he, he says one thing about a profession and that he's in grade four. That's what this is. And this is also too much political correctness just gone awry. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. As always, Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've talked a lot about inflation on this show in the last little while, obviously post-pandemic, uh, as the economy has taken off and now interest rates uh, on their way up. Another announcement coming up later this week of an increase, we suspect. Let's bring in Eric Cam, Professor of Monetary Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Eric, thank you for the time as always. Hope you're doing well. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you are. and The listeners are, too. Eric, we talked a bit about this uh, a while ago uh, in the headline in the Globe and Mail today, how central bankers lost their grip on inflation. One of the quotes even says something about uh, bankers doing soul searching. Um, We talked about this again before. Is this to be blamed on the Bank of Canada? Do governments uh, ask them to keep rates low or to push them up? What's your thoughts on what we're seeing right now? You know, I have a sympathetic view right now of the Bank of Canada. I think it's really easy, as the article cites, a lot of people coming out of the woodwork and kind of providing this almost post-mortem on all the things the Bank of Canada could have done, should have done, might have done. And frankly, I find it bordering on ridiculous to disingenuous because we just came through two and a half years of a pandemic and everybody was applauding, well not everybody, but most people were applauding the bank for keeping the liquidity in the in the country mm. high. There was not a person who didn't understand that we weren't printing too much money, we weren't confronted by supply chain shortages, but for two years all I heard were people saying that they're doing what they have to do because if they don't, too many people are going to lose their livelihoods and they're going to starve to death. Okay, so if you're going to have that attitude and say that they did a good job for two years of keeping the boat afloat, I think it's really horrible now to look at the Bank of Canada and say they've suddenly lost their way or they've forgotten how to do their job. They know their job. They know how to do it. But they are confronting, as I say, their neighbors across the street who've handed them a real bag of garbage and said, now I need you to deal with it and deal with it fast. And, you know, Scott, there is no such thing as fast in economics. Uh, So how much influence do governments have over what the Bank of Canada does? Well, they have a direct influence. I mean, we say that they're at arm's length, but that's like saying that my wife is at arm's length to me. I mean, it's Hmm. kind of a silly thing, right? They are one and the same since that's how the Bank of Canada governor gets appointed and the Bank of Canada governor reports to people at the Treasury and the Prime Minister. So you can, you know, you can kind of forget about this complete independence thing. But more to the point is, is not just the independence of the bank. It's the fact that the bank is not buffered from the government. And again, not to be too repetitive, but the supply state chain shortages and the monetary stimulus that we've just come out of, you're going to package that up and put it on the doorstep of the Bank of Canada and say, deal with this quickly is absolutely impossible. The bank is doing what it has to do. It's doing it with the only way that it's allowed to do. There's only one proverbial bullet in the holster, and that is monetary policy and raising interest rates. But you know what? Interest rates are a little bit like morphine. My family always wanted me to be a real doctor, so I'll give this a try. If you give somebody a ton of morphine, it takes the pain away, but too much morphine and you stop somebody's heart. So the Bank of Canada knows that it has to raise interest rates, Scott, but if it raises it too fast or too much, then you're going to see the GDP fall, you'll see employment fall. So they've got to kind of go slow and steady, and that's all that's going to win the race. It seems that uh, for years we talked about the unusually low interest rates uh, that, you know, and years ago, it's like two decades now, it seems like uh, they were going to come back. And then all of a sudden, this was the new norm. Are we at a turning point economically now or because nothing is going to be the same coming out of this global pandemic uh, two and a half years later? No industry is the same. Are, are we very much at a turning point with our economy at this point in a in a post pandemic world? Well, yeah, very much so. And so right now what we have to do, I mean, the writing is on the wall that we're in for some very lean years. And I didn't say months, I said years. And I, and I think that I'm going to be right. 
I don't have a crystal ball, but if you look at all of the macro variables, they point to some tough times ahead. And so, yes, it's been a game changer. This is when you're going to have a change in how the economy runs, how the economy looks, how much it costs to borrow money to make big purchases by households and by firms. And again, if you want to be critical of the central bank, you can say that this period of time should have started earlier. It probably should have started before now. The problem is, again, you might have heard that for the last couple of years we had a pandemic. And so it was almost impossible. The bank was kind of in a no-win situation. Did you want to begin this two years ago and inflict this upon an economy where people mm. were staying home and not working and, and earning CERB? So the bank had to make some very difficult decisions that it was going to wait till it came out of the pandemic to start this. But they knew what was coming. As some of the people quoted, like Angelo Molino said, there's going to be rough times ahead. And that's absolutely true. But before we jump on the Bank of Canada, it was inevitable. It was prescribed. And now what the bank has to do is make sure the highs don't get too high and the lows don't get too low. And that remains to be seen. Uh, this is sort of off topic, but I'd love your your thoughts on this as a professor of economics. Uh, the Green Party just this past week announced that itself, along with the NDP, the Liberals, and obviously the Conservatives, were going to pledge to build 1.5 million homes in the next 10 years. I find it absolutely astounding that parties from the left to the right are all jumping on board. What are your thoughts? Um, once again, let's go back to that term, ridiculous, bordering on bizarre. I mean, listen, there's an election coming up in Ontario. There's a federal election. Well, it's OK, four years away. But this is a little bit of a one trick pony that, again, I find the glass half empty. Everybody knows the problem in housing prices is not really interest rates. It's a supply problem. So now everybody's jumping on the boat of saying, well, we're going to build more houses and build more houses. My question is, number one, how? Number two, who's going to pay for it? And number three, where do you plan on building these houses? If you've been up and down Avenue Road or Young Street, are they going to go straight up? I mean, I don't know what they're going to do. So to use a Yiddish expression, maybe they're going to build them in Yechepetzville, <laughs> two, three hundred kilometers away. But when they do and the population of Yechepetzville triples, are those people going to be able to live there and work in the urban centers? So, again, this is like the people that jump on the float and, and blame the central bank. It's really easy to make these claims. It's impossible to back them up. Did any of these parties not see this coming? I think all of these parties saw this coming, and I think you're seeing a real prob problem in the political system, which is a lag. P parties don't want to deal with trouble. They pray it doesn't happen in their term of office. You've heard that term before. So again, it didn't take a rocket scientist to realize what was coming. We had no new houses for the better part of a decade anywhere where near urban centers. So now you throw in interest rates going up, and so that's going to make mortgages harder to, to afford. And we are, again, not to be too repetitive, we know we're in for a difficult time. The political parties know we're in for a difficult time. The difference is they don't want to say it until it's absolutely necessary because nobody wants to lose constituents. I don't have any constituents. I'm not a household name in my own household, so I just tell it the way it looks. Eric Cam with us, Professor Macroeconomics, Monetary Economics with the Toronto Metropolitan University talking about inflation and interest rates and housing and all the rest. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. It's an honor. Stay healthy. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, here we are the last week, the last throws of an election campaign. Obviously, we head to the polls uh, June 2nd, and everybody should have their voters' cards by now and, and know where they're going to in order to get that done. Uh, we've talked over the course of this campaign and have for an awfully long time how priorities have changed when it comes to what voters are looking for uh, coming out of a global pandemic. Let's bring in Sean Simpson, VP of Ipsos Public Affairs, and with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. 
Before we get to what's uh, on people's minds heading into this election June 2nd, one thing I wanted to to get your take on and just how the priorities have changed for uh, not only Ontarians, but Canadians and many uh, after a a global pandemic. And I talked about this uh, a week ago that the three major political parties, the NDP, the Liberals and the PCs have all committed to building 1.5 million homes. And then this this in the next 10 years, of course. And now the Green Party uh, last week has jumped on this, which I just find absolutely astounding that now people are realizing that this is an issue when it seemed like it was a lot of environmental issues that sort of have stalled this over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years or so. What are your thoughts on, on what we're seeing with all four of these parties now agreeing that this is a big issue? Yeah, well, there's a, a clearly a convergence uh, around affordability, and it's not just affordability of day-to-day things uh, like groceries and gas, which, by the way, is the number two issue of the campaign. It's about affordability of homes and a place to live. You know, when we used to talk about affordable housing, what we meant was for, for you know, people who were, were down on their luck, homeless people, essentially, who needed access to housing. But now when we talk about housing, we mean you know, you and me and their children and, and, mm-hmm. and that everybody can afford a place to live. And that is actually now the number four issue in this election campaign uh, ahead of uh, the economy, ahead of uh, tackling climate change even. Uh, that's a big one right there because climate change was a, a major pillar uh, for uh, years, it, it seems, and 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 we've neglected other um, issues as a result. Well, I wouldn't say as a result, uh, as as opposed to that. Um, why do you think? Are you surprised that you're seeing four major political parties from the left to the right side of the spectrum? pushing this and and are you surprised we didn't see this coming because we certainly talked about it yeah well it people are it's funny even when you know things are coming you seem surprised when you actually have to deal with them don't you um and i think that's that's the case here you know interestingly climate change in the federal election of 2019 was if i remember correctly the second maybe third but i think it was the second most important issue according to canadians at the time now Since 2019, of course, we've had a whole bunch of things happen from war in Ukraine, uh, a a global pandemic. uh, And now, of course, we have inflation and rising interest rates. So all of those those things, um, in a relative sense, push climate change down the list. In an absolute sense, Canadians are still quite emphatic that we need to do something about climate change. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there are only so many big challenges we seem to be able to tackle at any given time and that therefore that pushes climate change down the list when people are struggling to put gas in their cars so here it is the last week of this election campaign what's the priority give us a a list of what your research has showed you and how this has changed over the course has it really changed over the course of the election but probably obviously over the course of a pandemic what 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 are the priorities now in fact, it has changed over the course of the election. So in April, before the writs were issued, um, we we uh, checked in on issues that Ontarians thought would be driving their vote, and we've just recently done it again. And we've seen um, attitudes coalesce around two key issues. The first is health care. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, health care is almost always the top issue in a provincial election campaign, uh, you know, it, driven disproportionately by older people, of course, who, who have uh, like a little bit more interest in, in, in health care as well. And the number two issue, up 10 points since uh, last month, is help with cost of day-to-day things like groceries mm. and gas. But that's not the only affordability metrics that, that we're seeing on the list. We see lower taxes in third place. As I said before, help with housing in fourth place. The economy and jobs in fifth place. Uh, lowering energy costs in seventh place. Uh, economic recovery from the pandemic in tenth place. So there's all kinds of, of um, you know, even if if if, if it's not overtly linked to affordability, they're definitely linked to affordability in in some ways. And uh, what's really interesting about it is on all of these affordability issues, it seems to be Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives who Ontarians favor. Um, and I think back to these checks that we all received in the mail a couple of months ago, mm. and I know a lot of it, a lot of people criticized uh, the government for sending these rebates for the license plate stickers, but if it subliminally reinforced the message that the Tories are putting money in your pocket while other parties don't have concrete solutions to do so, maybe it worked. 
We've all talked, we've only got about a minute left here, uh, Sean, but we've talked through this, the, the whole uh, duration of this pandemic, life would not be the same coming out. I thought the first six months we thought we could eat and, and, and sleep our way out of this, but obviously that didn't happen. And after two and a half years, there is change. Is the world at a turning point right now? Or is society changing at this point, post-pandemic? Yeah, I think that uh, many are taking the opportunity to to pivot uh, and uh, to to a new a new reality. And I think you know one of those is is clearly the future of the workforce. You know, with more remote and 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 hybrid. But I think there are all kinds of other areas where we're going to see uh, a transformation. And I still think, even though it's pushed down the the issue right now, I still mm. think there's going to be a reckoning with climate change very soon fascinating to uh to monitor how our heads are where we are uh before after and during a global pandemic and now coming out with a new future sean simpson with his vp of ipsos public affairs always fascinating sean thanks for the time be well my pleasure you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, a fascinating uh, new piece in the Globe and Mail by David McLaughlin argues that Canada is facing a trust crisis that threatens uh, who we are as a country and how we govern ourselves. Uh, it is entitled, The Trust That Binds Canada Together is Cracking. David McLaughlin is president and CEO of the Institute on Governance, a Canadian think tank, and is with us now. David, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. You know, we saw, I, I find the, the headline fascinating, uh, the trust that binds Canada together is cracking. We saw what mm-hmm. happened during the Donald Trump era uh, in the United States. Many said this was going on long before that, but he certainly solidified all of this. Many thought Canadians were much more advanced than that. Plus, we have more than a two-political party system. It wasn't going to happen here. Why is it happening here? Well, I don't think uh, we should uh, assume that we're immune. Uh, to this kind of political virus. I mean, we weren't immune to COVID as a as a virus. This thing hmm. uh, gets around, and uh, democracy is under stress everywhere in every you know uh, in every country that is a democratic uh, country, and it just shows up in different forms. So, I don't think or feel that we are on the cusp of a kind of a January sixth, you know, twenty. Uh, you know, 2021 moment that the U.S. had storming the, you know, the Capitol. It doesn't feel like that at all. But the the stresses underneath and the pressures for that are building in our society that that caused that those things to happen in the U.S. in a much more aggressive way, they exist here, too polarization in uh, amongst uh, uh, the public and between our political parties, people feeling alienated, that they're not listened to by to all these kinds of things and the pandemic made it worse so let's be be very careful it, you know we're not immune to this stuff it's interesting because at the beginning of the pandemic everybody was out in their front uh, front porch at seven o'clock at night banging pots and pans and there yeah. was unity we saw political parties of all stripes every level of government working together and then post-pandemic it seemed to change as soon as yep. uh, what really stood out for me was mandatory vaccines yelling at people when 90 percent of the population is already vaccinated why are we doing this it's we we, we instead of yep. celebrating our accomplishments we're vilifying the the five or ten percent that will never follow along but but what why do we have to belong to a team as opposed to doing what's best for the betterment of the country itself well look i think the uh, uh, the biggest problem with the pandemic is that it went on too long and that sounds kind of trite but you're absolutely right scott in the early days we were all in it together and then uh, after about six months when wave two hit well okay we'll still hang in Wave three and wave four, uh, you know, just put pay to that. And then when Omicron hit and everybody got infected, it seems, then the whole dynamic and the whole trust about with public health officers and the measures we were taking, the lockdowns, restrictions, which did, in fact, work, people had had enough. And I think you're absolutely right. Uh, When we look back, the vaccine passports, those vaccine mandates things, that seemed for people like a a stretch too far because we never had that in Canada. The trouble is, again, they were necessary at a point in the pandemic if we were going to open up safely. And we found that the way that with the transmission of the virus, because I did this file in Manitoba as clerk of the executive council and the senior public servant there, COVID was my file. And the reality was this. 
it was that small percentage that was getting everybody else infected and that was causing mm -hmm. the stress on the hospital system. So it made sense for a while. And then after a bit, it didn't. And we still have this legacy as you're now talking about. I think it's quite real, Scott. So have we lost the ability to agree to disagree? It seems I'm right in whatever your opinion is, is no longer just your opinion. It's wrong because what I'm saying is right, David. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of truth to that, Scott. And and uh, I think the reason for that is is you see this polarization that is showing up in our political parties. So it used to be that, you know, our political parties in Canada, which was your first sort of point about we are different, they were what we call brokerage, centrist parties, and they kind of brought people together. As the public gets more polarized, what do you do? You go to your tribes, you go to your base in politics, as they say. And so you're only speaking to them and you're speaking to them really aggressively, really strongly, and a way to mobilize them and motivate them to come out for you. And, the, and when you do that, you're, you, the political discourse, the, way, the words you use, the, the, the language, the voice is much more negative to anybody else. And it becomes a self-defeating proposition, doesn't it, right? If, if I'm only talking to one or two people that are going to vote for me, or basically four out of 10, 40%, that's gold in politics today. And nobody can get there. And it's because we're just still drilling down at, e at each other and yelling at each other. So this is the dynamic that we've got. And it's not going to give way anytime soon. Uh, and that means that the center is no longer the kind of the viable place anymore for political parties. You don't win by appealing to the center. You win by going to your base and getting a few more extra votes. You know, I've had this discussion with many in the poli-sci business about, uh, you know, the center's gone, the center's gone. But, you know, the, the middle between any two extremes will always be the center. Does that mean yeah. we've lost it forever? Well, in fact, what you're what you're saying is, is something I think is true is that what it, it, the center is moving. And what you're seeing is on the, as you'd say, on the right and the left, the fringes, if you will, they are trying to move the center towards them. They're trying to yeah. make themselves the center as a way to own the political discourse. And in the course of that, you get much more, uh, uh, you know, I'll say small R radical sort of political uh, uh, propositions. You get uh, uh, more focus on uh, on sort of base politics and, and smaller voting groups. And you get uh, a much more narrower pub definition of the public interest. And so that in turn will lead to mistrust amongst the people that aren't part of that conversation that aren't and, and they will feel hey you're not governing for me i don't believe you anymore and that's really the point i was getting at that's where we start to see trust and faith in our political institutions and in our democracy that's when it's going to start to fade away and fall away if we don't believe that our uh, leaders or our democratic institutions are working for us then why keep them why do and, and why do they matter and that becomes a problem and also, post-pandemic, all of those priorities have changed. I mean, after two sure. and a half years, there's no way you can go through this and come out the other side uh, the same. Have those no. political parties kept up with this, with the no, changing uh, priorities? Fact, I, no, in fact, uh, sorry, cutting off. I, in fact, think that you're right again here, that what you're seeing is that political parties, uh, they get it. I mean, they, they exist in a, in a marketplace, a political marketplace for votes. Yeah. It used to be for ideas, but in fact, it's a marketplace for votes. They're shopping for these votes. And if they're seeing this polarization in, in, in public or in, the, in public, uh, you know, or in different parts of society with friends and neighbors, we've heard it all in conversations. They're going to go there and they're going to double down on that. And what you're going to see is is uh, is this kind of you know stronger, more aggressive political conversation, less room for for uh, for the center to have a, a, a say in things. And I will venture that you're going to see not the right kind of public policy outcomes and public policy decisions for the good of the country. They'll be more focused on parts of the country. And, and that just has implications. And we need to be really mindful of this post-pandemic because I think it's gotten worse for all the obvious reasons. It was a hard pandemic on people. Alienation, polarization, frustration, and people are just, you know, they're mad, right? And and so this is a moment. we got to be careful of this, and we got to think about it, and that's why this I wrote this piece. And you can find it in the Globe and Mail. Uh, the trust that binds Canada together is cracking. You can find it on the Globe and Mail website. David McLaughlin with us, President and CEO of the Institute on Governance. David, thanks for the time. Fascinating piece. Be well. Thank you. My pleasure. Cheers, Scott. 
We heard alert, uh, earlier on today uh, in the new in the noon hour there was a report released by uh, Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbor in regard to uh, misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. You might remember this came out after a series of top officials uh, with the Canadian Armed Forces uh, allegedly uh, accused of misconduct and and even though there had been a report done just a few years earlier in 2015. Uh, as these cases hit the headlines, all of a sudden there's another report, and it is tabled today, and it says that the Canadian Armed Forces are incapable of recognizing the, the deficient parts of the culture that keep sexual misconduct and abuse of power entrenched, according to this blistering new report. Let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, and a fellow at the uh, Macdonald Laurier Institute. And with us now, Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, good afternoon, Scott. This is a very interesting topic. Well, you know, we, we've talked about this at length in the past, Christian, and this all came down after a series of allegations against senior officials. It seemed like a while there. They were dropping like dominoes, like flies, uh, in, in, you know, top officials in the military. So then, you know, hence this report came forward. But many questioned what was going to be different in this one from the 2015 report that pretty much nothing was done. So can, are, are we going to see anything different in this report as a result? Yeah, I think that's a good question. So we had these 12 recommendations in 2015, of which two were fully embraced by the military. And then it sort of either dragged its feet on the other 10 or the policy that was was rather imperfect, not enough stakeholders were consulted. So I think significant change was made as a result of the 2015 report, but it wasn't the Majorsticks weren't moved far enough and fast enough. And so that then culminated in, I think, the crisis that we have, the existential crisis. But I think there are two important conditions that are different this time around. This time, I think we have a minister who's fully engaged. And while I'm not Mm. sure how much political capital either the minister or the government is willing to invest, and the fact that the prime minister was not present for the announcement, I think, speaks volume on that front, the minister does understand that this will not only define much of her legacy in this particular department, but I think that this is also a personal commitment by her to the members of the Canadian Armed Forces. And you complement that with the chief of the defense staff, who's made it clear repeatedly that this is an existential crisis for the Canadian Armed Forces. Because if they can't fix the sexual misconduct and the leadership and institutional cultural issues, it means that it will aggravate the challenges the organization already has on recruitment and retention. That is to say, on force generation. And if you can't generate the right people and enough people, and you can't get them into the right positions with the right sort of experience, then that risks the Canadian Armed Forces not being able to deliver on its mandate for the government of Canada and for Canadians and therefore for Canadian interests. So I think that complementarity added to it the external monitoring where we will now have an external monitor that will report on a monthly basis on the progress the Canadian Armed Forces are making to make sure that they don't shirk on their responsibilities and they don't drag their heels and recommendations they don't like. Uh, plus the co- setting up this conversation now on about two thirds of the recommendations where the military is now going to come back to the minister with some uh, proposals on how on the options and how this could be done, I think sets us up for more sustainable sustainable change and success. You said uh, initially 2015, the yardsticks obviously weren't moved fast enough. Uh, Will we see another watered uh, down version? You talked about civilian oversight now, which is obviously important. So will we see like maybe another two boxes checked off of this and then we continue on till the next report? Well, I think there's a real realization on two fronts. One is, I think previously there's sort of been an assumption that this problem will sort of solve itself. And so we'll have a report, we'll give it to the military, the military will come up with a policy, and they'll figure out how to fix it. And I think what we see here today uh, in the presence of the deputy minister and the minister and chief of defense staff is a full recognition that not only will these problems not go away and can the military not only fix them by, by on their own, that 
this actually requires political leadership because many of the shortcomings require the government to make critical decisions. So one example, for instance, moving sexual misconduct cases out of the military justice system to the civilian justice system, which is part of a much broader reform of the military justice system. Those are decisions that the military itself cannot make, that the minister has to make. And so I think what we see here is the minister realizing that on many of these files, political leadership is required because it might require legislative changes, policy changes, it'll require budget allocations, it'll require um, institutional restructuring, reorganization that the military and Department of National Defense don't have the authority to do themselves. So I think we are further ahead and there is a real sense of learning from failures. Plus, a lot has happened, I would say, in the last seven years in the Canadian Armed Forces. And so for the public sort of rolls all of these in a sort of one big disaster over the last 30 years. And I think that's just a gross misinterpretation of what's happening inside the department. The challenge is it's not happening fast enough and it's not happening um, in as substantial a way as is expected, not just by the Canadian public, but especially by the survivors of uh, sexual and other forms of misconduct and harassment in the Canadian Armed Forces to reinstill the confidence and leadership. And that's what it's ultimately about because in the military, if you can't trust your leaders, then you don't have a military and a military organization because mm. they won't be able to, they won't carry out the orders that you ultimately give them. So restoring that trust is really, I think, ultimately what this is about. Many have said the military is not a priority for this government, whether it's spending, whether it's its own equipment, NATO, what have you. So can you not make those other issues a priority, but make this issue a priority? I mean, either you're in or you're out. Yeah, I mean, there is sort of a bit of a sense that this is a nice issue because it doesn't cost a lot of money and it sort of obfuscates and takes away from the many other challenges the Canadian Armed Forces are facing. But I would say that this is one of many small crises that the Canadian Armed Forces has, uh, you know, in addition to all the procurement challenges, to the many policy challenges, to the recruitment retention issues of which this is part, but this is only one cause of many. Um, and so I think the... Um, what we have here is a realization by the government that after 20 years of effectively um, sort of benign neglect of the armed forces and treating the armed forces of this discretionary organization that you can sort of invest in a little bit and they'll somehow figure it out. Um, the realization is in the 21st centuries, whether it's for domestic operations, for continental defense, or to deter uh, aggression by adversaries, the Canadian armed forces are a critical foreign policy instrument for Canadian interests. And so um, I think there is a, there, there's an understanding that you need to have all these conversations. I think what the government hasn't quite figured out yet is how do you move forward when you have so many uh, fires burning at the same time? And mm. that will hopefully mean um, a renewed uh, defense full-fledged defense white paper that lays out a plan for the next 15 years and how we actually transform this organization. Christian Leprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute talking about uh, Justice Louise Arbour's decision or report rather coming down today on the Canadian Armed Forces. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Have a lovely afternoon. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, that is it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Diana and Dave and the two Wills for producing. As always, we leave it to you, even via email, for the last word. This email comes in from Joe. Too many realized the pandemic was more about power and control and hardly about public health. Now, the trust is gone, and no one publicly in positions of power will admit that besides guys like Pierre Polyev. Look how he's treated over it. Ah, well. Online hate bills will fix people's... opinions. Well, it's your last word. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.